Good evening and welcome to the Love Hangover edition of the Eye on the Triangle. I am your host, Chris Chaffee. This week we have a lovely show for you. Mark Herring went out to find out about the psychology of love. Matt Nagardner and I got acquainted with the Wooly Adelgid. And Jacob will give us a preview of the Love Hangover show tonight at King's. Then later we will have a segment of uh, from Kyle Jones about food as well as... Lydia Simmons will sit down with Tommy to talk about her music blog in the rear view. We will also have weather, sports, sound bites, video game news, and finally Nick Toptine, commissioner of the Quidditch Club, will stop by to talk to us about the fabled J.K. Rowling sport. So stay tuned here on 88.1 for all this and more on Eye on the Triangle. But first, the news. In the wake of Hosni Mubarak stepping down, the Egyptian military has taken the reins, pledging a peaceful transfer of power to elected civilian rule. A senior military officer said, We will guarantee the peaceful transition of power in the framework of a free, democratic system, which allows an elected, civilian power to govern the country to build a democratic, free state. The Egyptian army is now urging protesters who remain in Tahrir Square to return home in an effort to bring Egypt back to a state of normalcy. Algerian protesters clashed with police in pro-reform demonstrations just days after the protests in Egypt. Organizers of the march estimated that some 10,000 people had taken to the streets in downtown Algiers, where they fought with riot police who attempted to stem the riots. Government opponents called for these protests to demand democratic reform and for the creation of more jobs. Bahrain's king has decided to give away $2,500 to each family in the Gulf Island in an attempt to appease the majority Shia public. Tunisia Interior Ministry replaced 34 senior security officials to overhaul the network of police, security forces, and spies built up by the ousted president over the decades. Algeria is planning on lifting its state of emergency, which has been in place for the past 19 years to appease groups that want government emergency powers scrapped. King Abdullah of Jordan has replaced his prime minister after protests, and the rulers of Kuwait have announced the distribution of $4 billion and free food for 14 months to all citizens. Armed men threw explosives into a crowded nightclub in the Mexican city of Guadalajara, killing six in a suspected drug attack. This is the second grenade attack on Mexico's second most populous city in less than a month. Two rival drug cartels, the Gulf Cartel and the Zetas, are battling for control of the area. Brazilian soccer phenomenon Ronaldo has officially retired from soccer, leaving behind a great legacy in both his club career and with his country. Winning the FIFA Player of the Year award three times and scoring a record 15 goals in the World Cup, Ronaldo will be remembered for his brilliant ability to put the ball in the back of the net and leading Brazil to the 2002 World Cup title. Anti-government riots have also spread to Iran, where crowds of demonstrators battle security forces armed with tear gas and batons during a surprisingly large anti-government protest. The gathering in Tehran, Iran's capital, appeared to be the most significant anti-government demonstration since massive government crackdowns in 2009. Just 96 feet short of their goal, researchers in Russia have stopped drilling towards the subterranean Lake Vostok for the winter. The lake has been buried under ice for 14 million years and may be home to forms of life completely unknown to science. NASA is particularly interested in this lake as it may give key insight into extraterrestrial life on Jupiter's frozen satellite Europa. For news on Eye on the Triangle, I'm Matt Gardner. Thanks, Matt. And when people fall in love, their bodies do some pretty strange and peculiar things that go beyond just that lovey-dovey stuff that we usually think of. In our first story tonight, Mark Herring gets the scoop on the psychology of love. I've heard people say that too much of anything is not good. It may start with an intriguing look or a kiss. 
or smell, but neurons fire and hormones secrete from the glands. It may seem primitive and crude to describe what happens in our bodies, but even our higher emotions derive from a physiological pathway. Despite its complex and mysterious nature, love bases itself from a natural origin. I talked to experts across campus for more insight on this biological and physical process. And first, I discussed this with Dr. James Knopp, professor in biochemistry. There are two main chemicals that you need to worry about. One is so-called PEA, or phenylethylamine, and the other one is oxytocin. Both these are involved with the mating and the sexual response, or sexual attraction, shall we say, between humans. So these chemicals, where are they produced, and how do they affect us? What kind of process do they take? I'm not sure that, that I have the complete information on that. There's a, you have a quick response, and that's the, what people might call the lust response, L-U-S-T, and that is for women, uh, they are attracted to certain kinds of men. People, for example, men which have broad shoulders and thin waists and, and large muscles. Uh, we know who guys are attracted to. But anyway, so there's the hypothalamus, which recognizes these different human shapes. And there's some suggestion that there's human smell involved as well. This generates directly the molecule we talked about before, the phenylethylamine, using a, a common amino acid, phenylalanine, as its source. PEA is known as a love-at-first-sight type of hormone that causes increased pulse and breathing, everything involved with Cupid's bow and arrow. However, oxytocin is responsible for the long-term monogamous romance. You have the second one, which is the oxytocin, and that's released primarily by the pituitary glands. A lot of things will initiate that, including childbirth. In fact, this is used to induce a childbirth. It's also uh, released during sexual activity and gives rise to responses of both men and women. And this gives a longer term. Uh, this is the, the being in love over a longer period of time. The monogamous effects of oxytocin are rare in many species besides humans. But strangely enough, a small rodent called a vole secretes the same protein. And due to this, it acts very much like humans in a monogamous way. I talked to zoology professor John Godwin to discuss this behavior in voles. Most people probably are not familiar with them, a little um, rodent called a vole related to mice and things. And uh, only about 3% of mammals actually form monogamous bonds. And these voles are among those 3%. And so we know an awful lot, actually, about what happens in the brain as they mate and they form a monogamous bond. And uh, it's, a, it's quite a strong bond. So if their mate is taken away or dies, they show symptoms that look very much like depression. I talked to Dr. Knopp, and he mentioned the case with the voles. And he also mentioned that there are two types. There's a prairie vole and a mountain vole. And the ones in the mountains, they don't really form those monogamous bonds. But scientists have been able to trigger a part of the brain, a receptor, that makes them feel monogamous. What is that and why does that work? Well, it turns out, so it's, it's, a, it's a very complex thing and it's important to realize that human love 
it's not something we, we can look at necessarily in a vault, but what we can look at is who do they prefer to be next to? Who do they prefer to huddle with? And if you give a vol a choice between huddling with a partner versus a stranger, um, they'll spend a lot of time huddling, maybe cuddling, it's hard to know, <laughs> uh, with uh, their partner, be that a male or a female, some males with females and females with males, if you give them the choice in these chambers. And what's really pretty striking about it, it's a very small genetic change that differentiates mon- these voles that are monogamous versus voles that are promiscuously breeding. They actually work with a metal vole. It's a, it's an, also a um, one of these promiscuously breeding species. If you make their brains more like the prairie vole, this monogamous species, uh, actually just by uh, using, it's a sophisticated molecular biological technique to just make their brains responsive to a peptide, this little hormone called vasopressin, in the right place, and it's actually in this um, dopamine pathway in the brain, then you can essentially make them more like the prairie vole, more monogamous in their social attachment patterns. And so it's a change of a single gene in the right area of the brain. Physical stimuli, including looks and kisses, trigger these proteins in our brains, which then provoke the secretion of the neurotransmitter dopamine. This natural yet powerful drug has a tremendous effect on the human psyche and behavior, and is most linked to addiction. There's a whole range of these. Um, one of the, the striking features, if you will, is that um, a lot of the same circuits that are activated by feelings of love, lust for that matter, are actually those which cocaine would turn on. There's the old song, Addicted to Love, by Robert Palmer, I think. is pretty close Despite these chemical and physiological processes that affect our feelings and emotions, the complete secret of love is far from being cracked. However, through science, we can further our understanding on the evolutionary and biological effects of romance and affection. Happy belated Valentine's Day. And from Eye on the Triangle, I am Mark Herring. The time is 7.12, and you are listening to Eye on the Triangle here on 88.1. We now turn our attention to the happenings of NC State and beyond with Tyler Vrannon and her community calendar. Good evening, Tyler. What's going on this week? Um, There's a couple things going on. Um, Campus Movie Fest sign-up is this week. So now is your chance to show what you can do as director of your own short film. This February, NC State is bringing back Campus Movie Fest for another film competition. This event offers students a chance to make their own movies and win prizes in the world's largest student film festival. Each team of students that registers will be provided with a Lunar Apple laptop, an HD video camera, and technical support. They will have one week to make a five-minute masterpiece. Submissions will be judged, and the top movies will be showcased at a campus movie fest. Finale celebration, red carpet and all. Prizes include iPads, cash, pitch meetings in Hollywood, and the opportunity to meet movie and TV industry luminaries, as well as the chance to enter the regional and national competitions. Register at CampusMoviefest.com. This Thursday, the men's basketball team takes on Clemson at 7 p.m. This Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, Bobcat Goldwith will be at Goodnight's Comedy Club in downtown Raleigh. Shows are at 8.15 and 10 p.m. all three nights. Plain White Tees will be at the... 
Cat's Cradle this Thursday night at 7. On Friday, Punch Brothers featuring Chris Till will be at the Lincoln Theater. The show starts at 8.30 p.m. Also on Friday night, The Sweet Plantain, a string quartet specializing the genre of blurring original works and contemporary works by Latin American composers, will be on campus at Thompson Hall beginning at 8 p.m. Baseball season begins this weekend, with State taking on Elon at 3 p.m. on Friday and 1 p.m. on Sunday. This weather will be perfect, so go out and enjoy. Hope everyone has a great week. Thank you, Tyler. And more about baseball later in the hour when we talk to Tyler Everett in sports. The time is now 7.14, and it is time with weather with uh, it is time for weather with uh, Cassie Mentha. Cassie, what's the weather going to look like for the next few days? Hey, uh, if you're like me and ready for spring, the next week will be a welcome treat. Although winter's not over yet, we'll see quite the warming trend over the next few days. A pleasant weekend is in store for us as well. Tomorrow will be just a bit warmer than today, and we'll have mostly sunny skies. High pressure will shift east of North Carolina, which will set us up with southwesterly winds. This will usher in a warmer air mass and help bump temperatures up to near 60 degrees. Wednesday night, we'll have partly cloudy skies with lows in the lower 40s. Some patchy fog will develop overnight and could stick around for the morning commute. Thursday will bring continued southwesterly flow with highs that flirt with the 70-degree mark. Look for mostly sunny skies during the day and a few more clouds building in for the evening. Overnight temps will be mild with lows falling to the upper 40s, and we may see another round of fog in the early morning hours. Friday will feel more like April than February as temperatures really skyrocket. Once again, we'll have mostly sunny skies, but Friday's highs will reach the upper 70s. We could even hit 80 degrees in some places. However, don't expect those temperatures to stick around for long. A dry cold front will cross the region Friday night into Saturday morning, knocking highs back into the mid to upper 60s for Saturday. We'll have plenty of sunshine, and it will be a great day to spend outside. Sunday will be almost as nice, although it will be a little cooler with a few more clouds. Look for highs near 60 degrees to rack up, rack up the weekend. If it, uh, it appears that warm temperatures will continue through the beginning of the next week. There's a chance to see some rain Monday or Monday night, but overall the forecast is pretty dry. This is a concern since we have seen a nearly three-inch rain deficit for the year already. The NC Drought Management Advisory Council lists Wake County in the severe drought category and suggests that citizens examine their water use and make an effort to conserve. Hopefully we'll see some chances for rain enter the forecast during the second half of the month. So overall we're looking for a very pleasant week weather-wise. I hope everyone has a chance to get outside and enjoy it. Well, let's hope for rain. Cassie, and thank you so much for coming on. We um, are going to shift gears now, and actually there's a tour going on over there. Do you guys all want to, can you guys yell really loud? Can you can you yell really loud? Okay, we're ready. One, Cub Scouts. We have Cub Scouts all over the place. You guys ready to yell really loud? One, two, three. Well done. And now we are going to shift gears and talk about the woolly adelgid, an invasive one millimeter long uh, insect that kills Fraser first. And Matt Gardner and I this week went out to explore what the deal was. And after that, we are going to have our resident myth debunker, food myth debunker, Kyle Jones, debunking some food myths that you never even knew were there. So don't go anywhere. Here comes the adelgid story right now never heard of, there are some scientists doing some important research that you've probably also never heard of. In Grinnell Hall, a building that sits parallel to Western Boulevard, researchers are abuzz trying to unlock the secrets of the balsam willy adelgid. This creature is only a millimeter long, but it's wreaking some big havoc on Fraser firs in the mountains of North Carolina. Balsam willy adelgid, I think, was first introduced to the U.S. in 1952 um, in Maine, and it of course, it attacked balsam fir first. That's where it got its name, balsam woolly adelgid. And then it started to move down the Appalachians. As it moved down the Appalachians um, and came into contact with Fraser fir, a few years later, we saw 
you know, total devastation on those mountains. Those trees completely died. Um, all the leaves fell off. They they had this anaphylactic shock or oversensitive reaction to the adelgid infesting them, and they all just died. The tops of the mountains looked really sad for a long time. That's David Bednar. He's a Ph.D. grad student in the forest entomology department here at NC State. He's been studying the woolly adelgid for a while now, and he's got to know them pretty well. They're a sucking insect, so they're kind of related to aphids. But unlike aphids, once they start feeding, they can't move from that spot. They become completely sessile. So choosing the feeding site might be one of the most important things the adelgid has to do in its whole life. It's the only thing it really does, because once it starts feeding, it doesn't move anymore. And they, they molt into adults, and once they become adults, they produce eggs. Um, all of them are females here, where they're invasive. They're all clones of each other. They reproduce parthenogenically. Where they are originally from... They have an alternate host, a spruce tree, and they produce a sexual that'll fly off and have sex and reproduce. But since we don't have an alternate host here in the U.S. for them to reproduce on sexually, they only have the asexual phase. So all of them are clones from some of the first ones that were probably introduced 50 years ago. Well, it is pretty obvious that these adelgids are bad news. What's not so obvious is how to keep them from inflicting so much damage. Adelgids are not the most easy to understand insects on the planet, so David and his team's research is important to finding a way to keep adelgids from attacking the Fraser firs. This research is not only important to keeping our forests healthy, but also for Christmas tree farmers, whose livelihood depends on happy trees. There's a chemical called juvabione, which mimics juvenile hormone in insects. It keeps them as juveniles. And it's been shown in certain concentrations that it can prevent mealworms from molting into adults. We know that juvenile hormone or juvabione is present in the wood of Fraser fir species. So we're analyzing the wood and different sections of the wood to see where it's most concentrated and to see if the, the adelgid is going to come into contact with it when it's feeding. And then we're going to test to see how, what kind of juvenizing effects it'll have on the adelgid. To extract the juvabiome from the trunk of the tree, the Fraser fir has to be reduced down to a fine powder. This requires some elbow grease from scientists. We chop up the wood with a, a chisel um, into really small pieces. Um, we've already chopped up all of the, the juvenile wood, but basically we have to get it into smaller than three-quarter size chunks. So we're using the, the hammer and the chisel to chop it up into those size pieces. Once we get them into small enough pieces, then we take them over to the cyclone mill. And a cyclone mill basically works using centrifugal motion to throw the wood against a rough surface where it's grinded against sandpaper, and then that grinds it, and it also sucks it through a very small, fine mesh screen um, before it's collected into a collection jar. And again, it's really important that the wood is dry because it has a lot of chemicals within it as well as moisture and so that resin can cause a buildup within the mill and that's why we dry it out beforehand. They then take this dust and run it through a complicated extraction process to find out the levels of juvabion as well as other chemicals. However, it's not just juvabion that can fix the adelgid problem. There are other experiments that can be conducted which can help us understand more about how the adelgid behaves. SEMs which are scanning electron um, micrograph pictures of the surface of the plants to look at what the surface would look like to the insect. We're seeing a lot of interesting results from, from just the, taking those pictures. Um, other things we can do is we can look at the chemistry of the plant. 
by extracting materials from the surface of the plant or by extracting materials from the inside of the plant and looking at the chemicals there and seeing how they're different between plants that seem to be susceptible versus plants that seem to be resistant. By studying the biology of the woolly adelgid, David and the rest of the team can glean important details about its life cycle, which, in turn, can help them fill in important blanks about how it interacts with the rest of its environment. This could protect the death of future forests and keep tree farmers of western North Carolina in business. To do this, they will use an integrated pest management plan, which works in a couple different ways. What we're hoping to do is to breed resistance into the natural populations of Fraser fir so that when the adelgid attacks, rather than the tree going into anaphylactic shock and killing itself, it'll be able to tolerate the insect or maybe even resist the infestation. And then if you combine that with other management strategies for controlling the adelgid, like chemical control and biological control or using predators, then we, we may be able to eradicate or at least get the adelgid down to a manageable economic level for Christmas tree growers and probably more importantly, from my perspective, the natural stands of Fraser fir. For I in the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee. And I'm Matt Gardner. Ordinarily, I would go into detail exploring one particular facet of a food-related topic and do my best to reveal what you may not know about that topic. However, today I'm going to comment on a number of food-related myths that a lot of people might even swear by. I'll get things going with a myth that even I use quite often. It's known as the five-second rule. Some countries possess a similar mentality to determine whether food is still in its prime. For example, the phrase promptly picked up is not considered fallen is popular abroad. The idea is that it takes bacteria a few seconds to cling onto food once it's hit the ground. Well, studies have shown that it only takes a fraction of a second for bacteria to inhabit your food. But what you should take away from this is that the quicker you're able to pick up that fallen cookie, the better. Because bacteria will gather and quickly multiply the longer it's on the ground, especially in high foot traffic areas. Another life lesson handed down to you from your parents is that you should never swallow gum because it will stay in you forever. Maybe not that long, but apparently there was one case of undigested gum in someone's body that was present seven years later after they ate it. If that's true, then that guy is really weird. For those of us who are at least close to normal, I'll tell you why swallowing gum is harmless. Gum is generally made up of four ingredients. Flavorings, sweeteners, softeners, and the gum base. The first three don't stand a chance once confronted with your digestive system. However, the gum base is a synthetic product that is designed to withstand the dissolving powers of saliva. So when your fifth grade teacher asked you if you were chewing gum in class, the destroyed evidence you swallowed is not still in you today. The gum base should in fact be gone within a few days. The reason why is after the food in your stomach has gone through the digestive process of breaking everything down, everything is then sorted. What is of no value to your body is sent to the colon and eventually becomes waste. This next one concerns moldy food. We talked about this in one of my classes last semester, and some of this information really surprised me. If you have a loaf of bread and you see a little blue, black, or green spot forming, what do you do? I know in the past, I would just discard that piece or cut it off if the rest of the bread looked good. Do not eat it. What you're able to see is simply where the mold is thriving most. But what our eyes are not good at seeing are the numerous web-like strands of mycelium throughout the entire loaf that are already present. The reason I mentioned bread specifically 
is that compared to other foods, grain-based foods are especially vulnerable to many harmful molds and fungi. Many of these can secrete mycotoxins, which is what can make people sick. But if you have something such as cheese, and it wasn't blue when you bought it, it is still safe as long as you cut off at least an inch of its outer layer. Speaking of bread, my last myth is directed to those of you who keep your bread in the fridge. The reasoning is sound. If you put food in the fridge, it will last longer. That's because foods that spoil do so as a result of chemical reactions. However, bread doesn't undergo a chemical process when it becomes stale. Keep in mind, I'm referring to the texture of bread and not to the growth of molds. But we'll assume this loaf of bread is brand new and was put in the fridge right after you bought it. So when you put your loaf of bread in the fridge, the starch present will actually slowly crystallize, which is a process referred to as retrogradation. This process is a physical change that permanently affects the plump, glutinous texture, and you're left with a hard and unappetizing product nearly six times faster than if you left it covered in your bread box. So I hope in the future you don't keep your bread in the fridge, and now you know why. This concludes my segment on food myths. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Kyle Jones. Thanks, Kyle. And you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I am Chris Chaffee, and the time is 726. Since the beginning of the 21st century, the love hangover has been a triangle staple, celebrating all the facets of love. Jacob Downing has the scoop on this year's event. February the 14th has become known all around the world as a greeting card holiday that manipulates the forces of love in order to increase revenues from big flower and candy vendors everywhere. Raleigh concert goers, on the other hand, know that February the 15th is the proper day to make offerings to the faces of love, with an event now on its 12th year, The Love Hangover. I am joined by three of this year's performers, The Love Hangover's impresario, Carolyn Mamalitas, as well as Goner's Scott Phillips and the Shucks' Billy Carroll for a flash-forward to tonight's show at King's Barcade and a look back at the 12-year history of the event. The Love Hangover, now being celebrated in five cities, has its origins here in the city of Oaks. It's been hosted by The Poor House, Humble Pie, and King's. Question for Carolyn, how did it get started? Richard Alwyn created the show, deciding to pair up some local artists to sing on songs of love, Love Lost, and Love in Limbo. Richard was here for about three years, hosting and playing the show, and then took it up to Brooklyn, and I continued the show here in Raleigh, and this will be our 12th year. It's in five cities. There will also be a show in Chicago, Ann Arbor, and Kansas City, Missouri. Scott and Billy, both veterans of the event, what is your history? This will be my eighth love hangover. I've done it twice uh, with Caitlin Carey, three times with Caroline Mamalitis, once with Amay Argodi, once with Linda Wittig-Dawson, and this year I'm doing it with Billy Carroll from the Shucks. Just playing the odds, it'll be someone's first time getting their love hangover on. If they've never been before, what should they expect? It's a total emotional roller coaster. They should expect to see some wonderful combinations of boy-girl artists have never performed before, usually, although we have repeats now and then. Pairing up to sing songs, one of my favorite things about the Love Hangover show is people bringing songs out that you hadn't heard since 1985, or you hadn't, you know, you forgot your high school sweetheart, you know, that one song that just, you know, might have given you nightmares at the time, but you absolutely adore now. Most couples kind of get it right where it's a mix between, I mean, just rip your heart out sad songs and really hilarious songs. Probably the most emotionally rendering the song I ever did is uh, M.A. from Des Ark and I did uh, Crown of Love by Arcade Fire, and it just, I just, I just about lost it. That was pretty good. And then um, as far as funny stuff, I was actually just telling Billy when, uh, when Caitlin and I did It Takes Two, uh, there's a line in it about... Uh, 
adding a little bit of spice. And I, I said to her in rehearsal, you should uh, have some seasoned salt or <laughs> lemon pepper or something to shake around when that happens. And, and uh, she brought it, and she, she shook like half the bottle on the floor when that line came up. It was very funny. Amaya Godi and Daniel Hart did a song uh, several years ago that was the theme from uh, The Princess Bride. And it totally rocked my world when they did that. And they had these, like, mm-hmm. they had, like some kind of synthesizer or something. Yeah. It was really cool. So cool. How does the collaboration process work? It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when someone's been around this long, certain uh, kind of traditions happen. And the, the first tradition is the initial, you know, get your CDs or MP3s together and just listen to a bunch of music. And that's always, it's almost the most fun thing. I don't think everybody does it that way necessarily. No? Oh, that's the way I always do it. That's definitely it's your great. tradition. I get yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, just have conversation about music and love. And I mean, you do kind of wind up getting to know each other. Caitlin, at some point in the last couple of years, um, said something from the stage during Between Songs where she was like, you know, it's kind of like a musical romance, you know? You meet this person <laughs> and you get to know all about them and it's really beautiful. <laughs> she didn't say that exactly, but really a great excuse and it is true if there's a fellow out there that you just admire musically and just really have a hankering to sing with it's a great great excuse to ask them will you come sing with me um and it's especially cool when you're working with or performing with local artists who you know and you know their work and you like what they do and then you see what they do with these other songs it's it's a really neat aspect the other thing about it too is that they're not all duet songs so it gives each artist an opportunity to create a new harmony or create something you know that takes a song on a different plane and making it those two people coming together and singing what should people expect this evening will the songs have an americana folky feel I think because it's an acoustic show, it lends itself towards that a, a little more. But certainly we do a lot of rock and Led Zeppelin and Cheap Trick and soul. and you know. Yeah. There's always invariably some soul thrown in there. I mean, I've done Smokey Robinson, Cindy Lauper. Um, the year that May and I were together, we actually did an outcast song called Dracula's Wedding. Anything goes, really. The show is going to kick off at 9 o'clock with actually myself and uh, my buddy Dave Kepford starting off. And then next will be Billy Carroll and Scott Phillips. And then we'll have the lovely Christy Smith and Patrick Phelan. And then Abby Nardo and Seamus Kenny. And then last will be Ashley Carter and Jeff Crawford. Um, I went to a bunch of Love Hangover shows before I ever started singing in it. It was always, it was a beautiful show to attend. You know, they turned on the lights and sometimes you get candles or flowers and it's, it's lovely. You'll laugh, you'll cry. I don't know, what can I I say? It's an emotional roller coaster in a good way. You can get more information on The Love Hangover at thelovehangover.com or for the local show at kingsbarcade.com. Doors at Kings are about eight o'clock. Music starts around nine. One last question for you. If you wanted to be in the right mood for the show, what should you be doing or listening to? Listening oysters. There you go. Listen, listen to. Listen to your heart. <laughs> I mean the song "Listen to Your Heart" by Roxette. Naturally, I was thinking that I should have suggested. Listen that song to your actually. heart. And for now, you're listening to "I on the Triangle." You're on eighty-eight point one WKNC. I'm in the studio 
here with Taylor Barber from Technician. Talk a little about sports. Uh, not much happened this week in basketball, it seems. Pretty boring stuff going on. Yeah, we uh, the team had a week off heading into uh, this past weekend. Uh, finally didn't have to play a game, which was much needed. Had a couple guys banged up. Tracy Smith's knee a little hurt. Uh, Ryan Harrow was still had some uh, flu-like symptoms, but uh, went to Wake Forest, took care of uh, Demon Deacons down there. If I'm, I think if we could uh, play Wake every uh, year or every game, uh, Coach uh, Sidney Lowe might be coach, uh, player, coach of the year. Um, we just went down, dominated Wake in every aspect, just like we did here in Raleigh a couple uh, weeks before. Earned third ACC win. Looked a lot better. And uh, the biggest thing was uh, C.J. Leslie, the return of C.J. Leslie after a uh, uh, being suspended for one game against Duke, had to sit out, didn't travel with the team, came back, was inserted into the starting lineup, which I kind of questioned at first. I mean, Richard Howe had been playing very well going into the game, but Leslie started in front of Howell and um, played well, played one of his best games here. I know he had 19 points. Um, just, I mean, looked absolutely just dominant, very athletic, most athletic player on the court. Showed some of the talent that made him what he was coming in to stay, just a five-star recruit and everything and all the – what kind of shows what all the buzz was about. So, um, way going, State took care of business. I mean, they beat – they kept out of the – gutter there and the, the seller of the ACC by beating Wake, so uh, we'll see how they can uh, move forward. So it's nice to not be very last, I guess. So, moving right along, um, baseball. they got some big holes to fill, especially offensively. They lost their uh, top three hitters this year, and Kyle Wilson, Dallas Polk, and Drew Polk, all of them uh, graduated last year, so there'll be some holes to fill, but they have some of the guys. Andrew Simpson is going to be a huge impact player for them last uh, this year. If he can put up the numbers offensively he did last year, he'll be a uh, just phenomenal player. He uh, set NC State record for four grand slams in one season, had over 75 RBIs, was just a was just a run producer. Coupled that with Harold Riggins offensively, they're going to be uh, Pratt Maynard, who is uh, one of probably the best prospect on this team in terms of uh, major league potential. Pratt was named the MVP of his uh, Wood Bat League up at Cape Cod, which is the best league during the summer this year. So, I mean, there's going to be some big things. The offense should be uh, just very well off and be able to produce a ton of runs. The real question just be how the pitching will be. They have returning Corey Mazzoni, who was uh, the second best pitcher last year, but they have a lot of kind of young arms that uh, we don't really know who, what they can do. Now, what about Russell Wilson? No, Wilson, by signing for Wilson, by signing with the Rockies last year, he forfeited his last year of eligibility with, to play at state. So, just like what it seems to be in football, we are. Uh, it's time for NC State to move out of the Russell Wilson era or generation. A sad day, I'm sure. Um, so I was watching ESPN today, and I was watching about the collective bargaining agreement um, between the players and the teams. And I guess I'm quite the layman when it comes to sports, and I'm not really sure as to what that all means. Can you like break it down in like a minute? Yeah, well, ba- basically for a quick version of it, you right now you have your players' union, which is all the players that are with NFL teams that are in the union. So they have a say, and then you have your owners, who obviously own all 32 teams. And what's going on between these two teams is they're trying to agree on certain things. The owners want an 18-game schedule. They want more of the revenue that the entire NFL brings in. Every team has revenue and that all gets lumped into a pile and distributed out. And as of right now, the owners feel like they're not getting enough of that revenue. Players want more of the revenue. Everyone's just, I mean, it's, 
greedy on both sides. Owners want an 18 game schedule, which is going to put more just more injuries, more costs to the players, more harm to the players. And while they're asking for better better medical benefits, a better pension as they leave the NFL and get older. And, I mean, it's just the two sides are extremely far off. They've had meetings together. They had a couple meetings lined up this past week and ended up canceling them because, I mean, it's just like they're speaking completely different languages. They're not on the same page. And as of right now, if we don't see a drastic turn, I mean, I don't see it getting any better right now. It's, um, I mean, I don't think it's going to get to the point where we miss any regular season games. I think that's just stupid for what the NFL has going for it right now. It is by far the best sport in the USA, in the US. And it's just, um, I think there'll be idiots if they let it get to that point. I think both t- both sides will eventually come to agreement with some giving and taking on either side. But, uh, I think the biggest thing that we're going to see out of this, I think we will see an 18 game schedule. But we'll also see more of a rookie kind of wage scale where you don't get those number, those first round draft picks coming in making more than everyone, more than everyone on the team except for maybe three players. You won't see those giant $125 million contracts given to quarterbacks like Eli Manning coming straight out of college, people that haven't proven anything. So I think it will be kind of some concessions on both sides. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Taylor, for coming in. No problem. The Joy of Gaming podcast is recorded twice a month here at NC State, covering games and the gaming industry from a unique perspective. I'm Rich Lepore. And I'm Tim McNeil. And the following is a brief snippet from the Joy of Gaming podcast, a rundown of the latest events in the gaming world. On Sunday, Sony announced the long-rumored PlayStation phone, as if we didn't already know about yeah. it, which is now called the Xperia Play. The phone will run on the latest Android operating system, 2.3, and features a 5.1 megapixel camera and a 1 gigahertz processor capable of producing graphics at 60 frames per second. The Xperia Play will come standard with 400 megabytes of onboard memory and an 8 gigabyte removable memory card for storing downloadable games. Amazingly, um, the battery life is rumored to be over 5 hours on a single charge, which for a handheld, especially a handheld phone, is impressive. Yeah, but I also got to consider like how much actually phone use you're going to be using that's going to take that battery down as well. Oh, right, right, right. So this I think is, it'll always be a little bit lower. Exactly. This is in a perfect world. Yeah. Also announced was PlayStation Suite, which in the spirit of Nokia's N-Gage will be an Android-specific gaming platform, allowing users to download and play PlayStation 1 titles on their compatible Android device, including, of course, the Xperia phone. Also in this past week, we had the DICE Conference 2011, DICE standing for Design, Innovate, Communicate, and Entertain. It's considered by many to sort of be the Oscars of video games. Um, they had some of their games of the year this year. Their game of the year was Mass Effect 2, which uh, I know Rich yeah, definitely agrees with that. I would definitely agree with that choice. I think it was yeah. mine as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, fighting game of the year was Super Street Fighter 4, which was pretty much just a shoe in but Blaze Blue, maybe some competition for that, but didn't win it out. Yeah. Uh, the casual game of the year was Angry Birds. Which, I mean, it's an explosive yeah, I mean, title. Yeah. I mean, everyone I know and their mother plays Angry Birds. You play it? Uh, I actually don't have anything that can play it, but oh, okay. if I did, I would. <laughs> Get it on PC. I was thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> I might. Uh, portable game of the year was God of War Ghosts of Sparta, which I thought Peace Walker might take it. Yeah, but, that was yeah. a little surprising to me because sp- the fanfare around that game is a little light. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that it's not a, be- a good game. Not uh, Adventure game of the year was Limbo, 
which I'm a huge fan of. Surprise that one. I haven't played it. Need to play it. Yeah. Uh, strategy game of the year was StarCraft Two, which only real competition they had there was Civ Five, which certain pl- people are saying is the best strategy game of the year. But but yeah, I mean people have been waiting ten years for StarCraft. Starcraft so yeah. yeah. Um, and the outstanding achievement in game design went to Red Dead Redemption. Red Dead Redemption also won many awards. I don't know the exact amount, but it was sort of the one that won all these smaller categories, but it didn't win Game of the Year. You know, I think that's a lar- in large part because that game doesn't wear well. Like, I-, I had a really good time playing it at the time, but in retrospect, I, I don't think about it that fondly. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Avatar in a lot of ways, and that when it came out, it was really, really impressive. And it won sort of those technological awards, but it didn't win the Oscars and stuff like that. Guitar Hero is cancelled. Activision announced that they will not be releasing any Guitar Hero titles this year due to declining sales of games in the music and rhythm gaming genres. I guess they realize you can only sell a plastic guitar and plastic drum set to so many people so many times. And if people have three of them and they don't know what to do with them because they can't sell them. I stopped at one set. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like GameStop won't even buy them back. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Also canceled is the newest entry in the True Crime series of open world games, True Crime Hong Kong. Um, in essence, Activision said that the game simply wasn't going to be good enough. And in light of these recent cancellations, a rumor is circulating that Activision is planning to acquire Take-Two Interactive, who are the owners of the Grand Theft Auto series, among others. More on that as details emerge. All right. There's also a few releases coming out in this next two weeks. We've got uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, a game I'm really looking forward to. going to be awesome. Yeah. we got got uh, Killzone 3. Which is seen by many to be the PlayStation's equivalent to Gears of War and Halo. It's like it's like their killer shooter app, but it's yeah. also in 3D, and I think that's off-putting to a lot of people. Yeah, thinking they won't get the full experience because like almost nobody has 3D TVs, and I know I'm not getting one. Yeah, it, I don't think it's going to sell 3D TVs, but it might. Uh, also, we've got Tactics Ogre: Let Us Clean Together, which is a remake of a Super NES and a uh, PlayStation or. Tactics RPG. One of your favorite games of all time. Actually, right? it is. It's kind of created the tactics RPG genre. It's really, really good. Um, we've got Dragon Quest VI, which, you know, it's the first time this Dragon Quest is released in America. It's um, the one, like, like the lost chapter because it, it was the one that was never localized for American audiences. Yeah. So we'll see how that works out. We also got Mario Sports Mix, which, eh. Casual gamers rejoice. <laughs> Uh, and Radiant Historia, which has been a JRPG for the DS that's been getting a lot of good press so far. It's sort of like a time-traveling in, in, along the lines of Chrono Trigger, stuff yeah. like that. Um, and then another big one is Bulletstorm also comes out, which, you know, it's released by Epic Games, which is a local company. It's in Cary. Um, it's seen as many to be the successor of Gears of War. It's supposed to have a lot of new functions, a lot of new things for shooters. Some really cool features like that. To find out more about Joy of Gaming, go to technicianonline.com slash features. And be sure to email us at rtlepore at ncsu.edu with any questions, comments, or ideas to improve the show. In an area like the Triangle, brimming with both gifted artists and a lively, active community of higher education, 
It comes as no surprise that eager, talented, and engaged folks find themselves compelled to bring the fruits of their interest to the masses. I was able to sit down recently with one such individual, Lydia Simmons. Lydia is a Duke graduate and is editor of the Durham-based music blog Sunset in the Rearview, which features more character than you'll find in most other similar outlets. The blog, which features pieces on a diverse selection of musical tastes, was recently voted Best Music Blog by fellow web bloggers from around the world. So Lydia, when and how did Sunset in the Rearview begin? I started it one night in uh, December 2008. So you were still in school at this point? Yeah. Um, I was going through finals and didn't feel like writing paper. So I figured, you know, some of my friends had up on their Gchat away messages such and such dot Tumblr dot com. And I was like, what's Tumblr? I have no idea what that is. So I looked it up and realized it was a blog format. And I was like, hey, I could start a blog, you know, talk about music. And at that point, I didn't even know that music blogs existed and started it really as a way to share music I liked with my close circle of friends. And since then, it's really expanded into something a lot bigger. So you say it's expanded. Has it maintained its roots as solely being a music blog? It's definitely still just a music blog. Um, I'd say the best sort of umbrella term is music discovery blog. I mean, I do a lot of just new music postings and album reviews and interviews and fun daily features. Um, And I'm now just getting into starting sponsoring events. So... Tell me a bit more about that. What sort of events can a blog put on? Well, I had my first event in November. Brought in three local indie rock artists. The future I have actually just solidified February 24th. I'm doing a show at Motorco. um, Bringing in artists Hoodie Allen, Anthem, and Fortune Family. One could take it then as, you know... This is a blog kind of acting as a booking agent. You know, what, what's the reason behind a blog putting on shows like this? It's a, little, it's a couple of different things. Um, definitely to raise awareness about my blog and sort of bring local communities together. It's also to help put artists in the spotlight who I think are deserving of attention. And, of course, for a good time. Well, to me, that seems that it's just one more thing that would set a blog apart from other you know, contributors in that same area. Um, if you could, tell me a little bit more about the award that Sunset in the Rearview recently won. Well, I was just voted in 2010, Best Music Blog of 2010, by in a poll that only music bloggers could vote in. So that was probably the biggest honor I could have been given. So were these voters from around the world or around the country? or International, actually. Yeah, the poll was hosted in England. So I was shocked, stunned, really honored. Yeah, it's a huge honor, I imagine. So you've been up and running about three years now. Um, to date, can you point to any uh, set of experiences or experience that you've learned a lot from along the way? Just putting these shows together. Um, I never realized how much work that is. You know, doing the promotion and also paying for everybody to get there and making sure you break even and um, making sure everybody has a good time. So that's been a, a big step. Um, but also just, you know, pulling together a community of people from all different places in the world. I mean, I've got people who are talking to me from Australia. I have no idea how they found my blog, but they did. (laughs) I guess thank God for Google. Um, Can you recall a moment when you kind of took notice and said, wow, you know, this this has come a long way? I would say that was about a year ago. And traffic really started to pick up to the site, and I was realizing um, how much time I was spending on it. And that people were really starting to come back to me and say, hey, 
you know, I really like this site. I really like what you're doing. I like your voice. I like your personality. And I think that that's something that sort of sets me apart from other music blogs is um, I really put myself into it. I put my personality and I, I sort of have branded it as a blog with personality. Whereas, you know, there are a lot of blogs out there that just post a song and a download link. But I, you know, I tell how it affects me and what it makes me feel. Um, and a lot of people can connect with that. So Yeah, yeah. So who else other than you is, is in on it? Currently, I have one other main writer in Chicago. His name is Nick. goes by D-Prep. And I have a few other contributors who help just with specific features. But essentially, for probably a little over a year, a year and a half, it was just me. So you told us about being able to recognize that you really had something good going with Sunset in the rear view. Was there ever a time where you kind of said, wow, you know, I have, this is really picking up steam and I have a lot of work invested in this. Is this really sustainable? You know, can I do this without burning myself out? Definitely. I think that it started to pick up to a point where I told myself, I do need direction. I need to, you know, sit down and think about what am I doing here? Is it sustainable? A lot of people today really want so much content that it really does drain all of your time. I would say about six months ago, I really sat down and said, what do I want to do with this? Where is it going to go? Is it in an okay form right now? And what came out of that was a decision to totally revamp the website. Um, and that should be released probably within the next month. And that's a much more streamlined format. So I think it'll help me and it'll also be helpful to the readers. Yeah, I'd say so. It's nice to be reminded that you're not communicating or reading the work of a you know anonymous text generator somewhere. But if you could wrap the whole experience up in one statement, what would that be? It's it's a lot of work, but it pays off. I love every second of it, and that's the only reason why I would say that I'm in it for the long haul. Well, Lydia, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Um, and for all our listeners who may want to check out what we've been talking about, you can find Lydia's blog at sunsetintherearview.com. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Tom Anderson. Thanks, Tom, and a great blog it is. It is now 7.51 in the p.m., and you are listening to Eye on the Triangle. Now it's time for This Week in History with Tom and Nick. Hello, and welcome to This Week in History. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1801, Thomas Jefferson defeated Aaron Burr for the presidency after the House of Representatives had to vote because there was an electoral tie. He was 57 when he took office and had written the Declaration of Independence 24 years earlier. In 1841, the very first filibuster in the U.S. Senate began and lasted 27 days until March 11th. That guy must have had a lot to say. Speaking of which, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published the Communist Manifesto this week in 1848. It was a 96-page briefing on the history of class struggles and their political theories. Back in 1872, the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art was opened and currently houses many works from around the world. It is almost a quarter mile long and is over two million square feet. In 1878, Thomas Edison patented the phonograph. This invention was a widely used method of playing recorded sound for about 110 years following its invention. In 1885, Mark Twain published his novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, in the United States. It was harshly criticized after its release for very coarse language content. In 1925, The New Yorker, famous for being The New Yorker, was first published. Newsweek also had its first publication this week in 1933. It's one of the most circulated news magazines in the U.S., second only to Time. Back in 1948, the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, otherwise known as NASCAR, was officially incorporated. Each year, over 1,500 races are held at 100 different tracks in the U.S. and Canada. That's a lot of races, Nick. It certainly is, Dave. 
Fidel Castro became premier slash dictator of Cuba this week in 1959 and was in power until 2008. He was brought into power after the Cuban Revolution, which he played a crucial role in starting. In 1962, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth, spending a grand total of five hours circling the planet. He served as a Marine Corps pilot prior to becoming an astronaut and became a senator after his career with NASA. Back in 1965, Canada officially adopted the current red maple leaf flag design, making it much easier for elementary school students to color in their country's flag and signifying the nation's transition into the new Canadian identity. Also in 1965, Malcolm X, born Malcolm Little, was assassinated at a speech he was giving in New York. Malcolm X is considered one of the most influential non-mainstream civil rights activists. His work in the African-American community is credited with increasing the drive to achieve ethnic equality. In February of 2001, Dale Earnhardt died in the final lap of the Daytona 500 after 25 years of racing. He won 76 races, including one Daytona 500 in his number three car. He was famous for his aggressive driving style, which earned him the nickname The Intimidator. In 2005, YouTube was launched, making it extremely easy for someone to become very famous for a very short period of time. Birthdays! Our first birthday of the week is Nicholas Copernicus, born in 1473, who was a famous astronomer and proposed that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Also born this week is a supporter of Copernicanism, Galileo Galilei, who is commonly referred to as the father of modern science. I guess that would make Copernicus the grandfather of modern science. That's a logical statement there, Nick. In 1820, women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony was born. During the peak of her activism, she averaged 75 to 100 speeches per year. Yoko Ono was born in 1933. In 1941, Kim Jong-il, the leader of North Korea, was born. He is officially referred to as the supreme leader and commands the world's fourth largest standing army. In 1954, American actor John Travolta was born. He is most famous for his roles in Grease and Saturday Night Fever. Comedian and actor Larry the Cable Guy was born in 1963. Get it in! Director Michael Bay was born in 1965. Films he has directed include Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, and Transformers. In 1968, actress Molly Ringwald was born. She is best known for her roles in Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. Kurt Cobain, lead singer of Nirvana, was born in 1967. Rolling Stone magazine ranked him as the 12th greatest guitarist of all time. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical. Raleigh. I'm sitting here in closed production with Nick the commissioner of the illustrious Quidditch club here at NC State. Nick, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. My name is Nick Toptine. I'm a second-year freshman here at NC State and the commissioner of the Wolfpack Quidditch Club. I know Quidditch dates back long, long ago to the first Harry Potter book. Tell us a little about what Quidditch is. Quidditch in the Harry Potter world, obviously a magical sport. You like played on flying brooms. The Quidditch that we play is Muggle Quidditch, which is an adaptation of Quidditch from the novels, except we can't fly, so we run around on brooms. Right, so uh, muggles are... Muggles are non-magical folk, and that's a term that was thought up by uh, J.K. Rowling for the novels. How do you go about playing Quidditch? So, Quidditch, well, muggle Quidditch, there are five balls, I want to say. In Harry Potter Quidditch, there's four. Um, there's a quaffle, three bludgers, and a snitch. What do each of these balls function as, or how do they function? Um, the quaffle is the scoring ball, and that is a is, for us it's a volleyball, um, which is used by the chasers who throw it through one of three hoops. The bludgers are just basically that they're we use we use dodgeballs as bludgers, and the beaters use those to try to peg people and take them out of the game, much like dodgeball. And the snitch is one of the biggest adaptations from the novels. Um, the stitch, rather than being a little golden ball with wings. 
is actually a runner, typically a cross-country runner, um, possibly someone with a little bit of wrestling experience as well, who wears all yellow, has a tennis ball and a sock that hangs out of the back of their shorts, which the seekers need to catch, and is able to run all around campus for a set period of time. So they can go wherever they want on campus while these guys chase them around, right? Yeah, and it actually says in the rules that they can take bikes, ride around campus, climb trees, climb buildings, pretty much do whatever they want, including attacking the Seekers in various ways to keep them away. Now, what does the field itself look like? The field itself is an ellipse in shape, um, although the actual boundaries of the field are more like guidelines. Players are allowed to go outside of them. It's about 48 yards long, 30 yards wide, with the goal hoops about six yards from the end lines themselves. Who is the guy who just thought, you know, I want to play Quidditch without all the cool, super natural parts? Quidditch was actually started back in 2005, not in England like people would probably think, but up in Vermont at Middlebury College by a group of friends who apparently played bocce every weekend and decided one weekend, hey, let's play Quidditch. And they actually came up with a rule set that everyone now uses that really did a good job of taking Quidditch from the novels and adapting it to being able to be played by us. And from there, it's grown into an international organization that encompasses over 300 collegiate and high school teams around the world, actually. Fantastic. How is Quidditch here at NC State? I know that recently you guys had a bit of a uh, tournament. Yeah, we had a Quidditch tournament back in November, um, the Tobacco Road Quidditch Cup. We had Duke, UNC, and UNC Greensboro down to play, and we ended up beating all of them, which was awesome. As for how we are overall, I'm not quite sure yet because all the teams that we've played so far have pretty much come up, have started up recently, like including ourselves. We haven't really had any major competition against schools that have been around for months or like a couple of years even there are teams like that in virginia and south carolina that hopefully we'll be able to play eventually and be able to gauge that but we just don't know right now so how long has the quidditch club been around um we've actually been around since like fall of 2009 is when we started um we started off small and this year we got back in the fall we ended up like growing from 10 to around 40 members and about 2025 started coming regularly and that's how we got our team so if i were a Quidditch player, and I was looking for more information on how to get in touch with you and your Quidditch pals. How would I go about doing that? Well, we are on Facebook, um, Wolfpack Quidditch Club, nice and easy, and that has links to our website. Um, we have Twitter, NCSU underscore Quidditch, um, and our email is just wolfpackquidditch at gmail.com. And you can easily like, follow us on Twitter, get on our Facebook, and you'll be able to get event updates for pretty much everything we do. Wonderful. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Good luck. Fantastic, and that was Nick from the Quidditch team. This week, we're going to close the show with the revival of an old segment, Sound Bites. Our newest contributor, Selma, was uh, was sent around campus to ask people what was bothering them that day. So, without further ado, this is Sound Bites with Selma. My name is Selma Abdulhai. And I am Mark Herring. And we went around State's campus asking people what exactly was bothering them that day. Can you introduce yourself and uh, tell us what's on your mind? Uh, hi, I'm Jacob Brown. Lately, the NC State Transportation Department has been really putting me on the edge. I got my fifth ticket yesterday, and I, I parked um, I parked in, uh, I guess it was 7 to 12 a.m. parking spot right down there uh, across from Tally because there's no parking spots available. It's like 8 o'clock at night, and I walked in here to get a sub, and I... I was probably in here for five minutes. Got back out to my car with a $40 ticket. And, you know, there's no way I can appeal that ticket. So 
I mean, I paid probably a hundred some dollars in parking tickets, and they're like invalid parking. I've got two invalid parking tickets, and like I can't like I live off campus, but I eat at Fallon, so I don't know like, and I have to drive there, and there's nowhere for me to park. And I've got two parking tickets parking there. It's like I don't understand. So it's not the towing; it's the parking tickets. I mean, I've tried, but I still get tickets. If you could just sit down and talk to the director of transportation, what would you tell them? Um, that this the parking system you have currently at NC State is ridiculous, and like you need you need to change something about it. Just like like I pay two hundred dollars for a parking pass that I can't I can park in one tiny little spot, and if I park anywhere else, I have to pay a fifty dollar ticket. That just seems absurd. So, actually, they got you twice. They got you $200 on the parking pass and $200 in tickets. You've been hoodwinked, my friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself and tell us what's bothering you? My name is Jeff Ray, and I'm pretty upset that it didn't snow yesterday. It's really annoying. It's supposed to have at least two hours off, and it didn't happen. Yeah, so what classes do you have in the morning? I actually don't have class until 1030, but... I was more for my roommates' sake because they all have early classes at like 8.30. And so I was just kind of hoping that they could at least get something out of it. All right. Um, I don't know. Are you happy with the the weather now? It's kind of warm. Yeah, it's getting awesome. Um, I like to run a lot. So the cooler weather, it helps when I'm running because I don't get really get too hot. But when it's above 30, it's money. If it's like 40, it feels even better. But I I do appreciate that it's warming up a little bit. So could you introduce yourself and explain what is going on that's making you so angry? Okay. Um, I'm Sahana. I am doing my master's in computer science. And since I'll be graduating this May, I need a job really badly. So um, I am not getting interview calls as yet, which is the thing that's really bothering me. And yeah, I guess... Oh, yeah. And one more thing is I'm losing a lot of money and I don't have a track of it. So I'm wondering how that's happening. Yeah, that's two things. Big things. Now, how are you going to try to make it better? Um, About the money, I think I'm improving. <laughs> I've decided I'm going to keep more track of what's happening by, uh, you know, settling accounts easily. I mean, immediately. And about the job thing, I have no idea. <laughs> Well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I hope your week gets better, man. Thank you. <laughs> okay, man, just tell us what's bothering you this week, and you say anything you want to say. This is your time to vent to the school. All right, so my name is Chris Adkins. I'm a junior in mechanical engineering. And I would go with the combination of three exams and two homework sets and a lab report due this week. Not very very good for my sleep schedule. Talk about your sleep. You, you getting some? <laughs> um, I think I got about 10 hours the past three nights combined, so yeah, it's a little little rough. Is it worth it? Yes. <laughs> the time is 8.04 p.m., and that about wraps up this week's of Eye on the Triangle. I want to take... I want to thank Taylor Barber, Tyler Brandon, Jacob Downey, Tommy Anderson, Selma, Kyle Jones, Lydia Simmons, Dave, and Nick for their contributions, the technician for their help and collaboration, the Windover for their authors, Assistant Director Mark Herring, the Quidditch Club, our friends in the Entomology and Forest Departments here at NC State, Margaret May, the Joy of Gaming Podcast, the NC State Meteorology Department. If you have a question or concern, email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org, call us at 919-628-0869, 
Or you can find us on Facebook by searching Eye on the Triangle. If you're more of a snail mail fan, our address is WKNC 88.1, Detention Public Affairs, Campus Box 8607, 343, Witherspoon Student Center, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27695. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee, and we will see you next week.